so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, once again sitting in for Tim Alders. Had a little brief hiatus as laryngitis has had its way with me for a few weeks. You know, on the bright side, I can say, well, at least it wasn't COVID. But on the other hand, uh, not being able to talk sucks. <laughs> and it really sucks when, when that's uh, what you do, you know, to uh, to make your way through the world. Nonetheless, I'm so glad you could join us today here on the America Out Loud Network. And uh, I, I thought we could talk a little bit about human nature, just as kind of a starting point. Uh, history, if you study history, will will clearly show you that human beings tend to struggle with the very same issues. Regardless of the time or the place, human nature is remarkably consistent. You know, on the one hand, that's a good thing. Because it means that, okay, we, we know these are the weaknesses we need to look out for. These are the strengths that are good to develop. But uh, unfortunately... Unless you study history, you might not make that connection. And you might be tempted to make this, uh, you might be tempted to think that, well, you know, things are different today. After all, we have jet planes and we have, you know, electronic communication and the Internet. Whereas, uh, say, the founding generation, you know, they had quill pens and they rode places on horses. How could they possibly understand, you know, the kind of things that affect us today? And yet, uh, in a perfect illustration of the difference between knowledge and wisdom... The wisdom of the founding generation still stands the test of time. It wasn't dependent upon a particular technology or population size. It's all about human nature. Knowledge, on the other hand, well, that can change as we we uncover new uh, laws of nature, as we uncover better understanding. You know, for instance, when's the last time you went to the doctor and the doctor said... I see you have a case of the vapors. You know what we need to do is attach a few leeches. Nurse, bring me a pan of leeches and we'll get this person fixed right up. It just doesn't happen because the knowledge of whatever the leeches provided became obsolete. Wisdom, on the other hand, it's going to be true no matter what, no matter where. Which brings me to a commentary from Dan Sanchez. And it's just a terrific essay about how when you give a person enough power there's a very high likelihood that he or she will abuse it. Now, Dan's essay is called The Ring of Impunity. And he covers a lot of ground here, but I want to share this with you in the hopes that it gives you some insight into why people tend to abuse power, whether it's a part of human nature, and and why, uh, among the greatest things, you know, I, I, by the, for the record, I'm going to tell you, I agree that uh, most people, even myself, you give me enough power and I would abuse it. This is one of the reasons why I I really, I don't seek power. I'm not looking for it. I don't want to run for office. I don't want to run other people's lives. 
because I would probably be inclined to abuse it. Or at the very least, I would start mistaking my press releases for reality and start to embrace the idea that, well, you know, I'm a very important person and none of, none of this good stuff could happen without me. Here's what, uh, here's what Dan Sanchez has to say in The Ring of Impunity. He says, in The Lord of the Rings, the plot centers around the one ring, which is supreme among all the rings of power crafted by the evil Sauron. Now, some fans have been underwhelmed by the power that it grants its wearer, which is mere invisibility. This would seem to pale in comparison to, say, the superhero Green Lantern's power ring, which can create just about anything its wearer imagines. So what's the big deal about invisibility? And why would such a ring be so corrupting to its wearers, especially like it was to Gollum? Well, Dan Sanchez says J.R.R. Tolkien made the One Ring special far beyond this one power, but that invisibility is actually the one fantasy superpower that best represents state power. Now, check out his explanation. He says, what, after all, is power? Is it simply the capacity to exert unjust force? The ability to impress one's will upon the flesh or belongings of another? Surely not. And the reason is because most anyone can wield unjust force. Anyone could walk out onto the street right now and exert their will on someone weaker, say pushing over an old lady or stealing candy from a baby. And the toughest, most heavily armed guy in town can strong arm just about any other single person. But perpetrating isolated incidents of aggression is not power. And the reign of the rogue rampager is extremely short-lived. In fact, it lasts only until the community recognizes him as the menace to society that he is and then moves to neutralize him. So Dan says, no, power isn't simply about the exertion of unjust force. It's about what happens next, after the exertion. Does the perp generally get away with with the whatever he or she is doing or not. Systematically getting away with it, or impunity, that's where power truly lies. And that is what makes agents of the state different from any other bully. State agents can aggress with reliable impunity because a critical mass of the state's victims consider the aggression of state agents to be exceptional and legitimate. That is power. And Dan says that's why invisibility is such an apt analog for state power. The public's moral vision has a complete blind spot when it comes to the state. He says it detects acts of theft, enslavement, and murder whenever they're perpetrated by anybody else, but it's blind to the criminality involved whenever the same exact acts are committed by agents of the state. So we're blind to theft. Instead, what we see is, well, that's taxation or fees or citations. It's blind to state enslavement, instead seeing mandates or prohibitions and regulations. And it's blind to state murder, seeing instead war in pursuit of the national interest. Now here he quotes Lord Acton, who wrote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And Dan Sanchez says again, the one ring's power of invisibility can be taken to represent impunity, which is the essence of power. So it makes perfect sense that the one ring would be so corrupting to Gollum, transforming him from a gentle hobbit-like fellow into a mad, mendacious, and murderous fiend. Careful contemplation of the link between impunity and corruption goes as far back as the 4th century BC to a thought experiment designed by Plato which also involved a ring of invisibility. 
In Plato's Republic, the legend of the Ring of Gyges, or Gyges, I'm not sure how to say that, sorry. It's used to argue that a man would not likely adhere to justice if he was privileged with complete impunity. Now, Gyges was a, an, a shepherd who, upon finding an invisibility-granting ring, used that to slay his king and then take the throne for himself. Plato's character Glaucon concludes, quote, Suppose now that there were two such magic rings, and the just put on one of them and the unjust the other. No man can be imagined to be of such an iron nature that he would stand fast in justice. No man would keep his hands off what was not his own when he could safely take what he liked out of the market, or go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure, or kill or release from prison whom he would, and in all respects be like a god among men. End quote. So Dan, Chance, Dan Sanchez says, such as the corrupting nature rather of state impunity. It presents the state agent with abounding opportunities to safely take what he likes out of the market through myriad methods of extraction. And that could include taxation or fiat money inflation, fees, fines, penalties, civil forfeiture, etc. And disbursement like subsidies or bailouts or welfare benefits, government paychecks and contracts. He says, faced with such temptations, no man would keep his hands off what was not his own. And Dan says, this is why politicians and bureaucrats are so avaricious, always eager to, at least in their pet fiefdoms, fatten their own wallets and resumes by way of engorging the state at the public expense. Like the Ring of Gyges, state impunity also presents state agents with opportunities to safely go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure or kill or release from prison whom he would. It invites them to indulge what St. Augustine called their libido dominandi, or lust to dominate, and to brutally mow down anyone standing in the way of their desires. That's why politicians and bureaucrats are so cavalier about the lives and the liberties of the little people, and they're so liable to consider it worth it in the words of Madeleine Albright, to kill or cripple or cage or torture hundreds of thousands of innocents, including children, in pursuit of their aims. He says, a man who can do a slapstick routine about looking for the fictitious weapons of mass destruction he used to lie his country into a major war, or who can jokingly threaten to use drones to kill teenage suitors of his daughters after actually killing teenage boys with drones, is a man whose soul has become totally warped by the impunity of office. By the way, I love the fact that he used George W. Bush and Obama as examples because it's not limited to one political party. Dan Sanchez says this sickness of soul can be seen in the brutality and mendacity of U.S. client states, privileged with impunity in the form of blank check, unconditional support from the global hegemon. Witness the uninhibited massacres and unabashed serial deceit, incredible even in the context of state conduct, that have recently been the stock in trade of Israel concerning Gaza and Ukraine concerning the Donbass. Now, he next talks about the golems in blue and their magic jewelry. And and I'm not trying to stand on anybody's toes here, but uh, if if you have kind of a, if you get a contact high off of authority, this could be uncomfortable to hear. Just putting that warning out there up front. Dan Sanchez says the corrupting nature of state impunity can be most vividly seen at the business end of the domestic state, the police. Instead of a ring, the magic jewelry they wear is a badge. 
And for all the recent justified worries about military gear in the hands of cops, it's actually the badge, or what it represents, that is the most dangerous item in their arsenal. Because it allows them to pass under the moral radar of the populace they afflict. Now, this moral exceptionalism grants cops a near total impunity that's buttressed and codified by the legal doctrine of qualified immunity. To paraphrase Gershwin, you say immunity, I say impunity. Let's call the whole state off. And Dan Sanchez says, corrupted by their moral invisibility granting costume jewelry, cops swagger through the world as if they were, in Plato's words, gods among men. In fact, he wrote about this once saying, legally, cops are nigh untouchable. As long as they're clocked in, the worst that a cop will suffer for aggressing against an innocent, no matter how egregiously, is losing his job. He'll almost never be charged with a crime, and he'll more likely just be given some paid vacation before being reinstated. This near total impunity frequently has precisely the effect one should expect. Reckless disregard for the rights of others and rampant childish indulgence in one's basest urges which means violence induced by hypersensitive pride, indignant scorn, steroid-addled rage, officer safety paranoia, power-mad sadism, and even rapacious sexual lust. Just look through the archives of Police State USA or Cop Block or the Free Thought Project or Liberty Crier to see countless instances of this paying out. Now, I feel like I need to clarify here, um, Dan Sanchez is not some cop hater. He's not somebody who just, you know, screw the police. He's not ACAB, you know, spray painting it around. He's a really down-to-earth guy. But his point is very well taken. And look, if you go to those websites, Police State USA, Cop Block, the Free Thought Project, etc., you will see examples of things that never really seem to make it to the media unless it fits a particular narrative. Ah, well, this was a white cop and that was a black victim. But the truth of the matter is, The police represent organized violence. And there are times where that organized violence can actually be used in a protective sense to protect the community from people who are predators. More often than not, though, that organized violence is used to compel obedience on the part of the rest of the the public. I mean, come on, red, white, and blue are the colors of freedom, but if you see them flashing in your rearview mirror, you don't feel very free. You feel shameful. You feel like somewhat of a criminal. And you're treated as somewhat of a criminal until that roadside stop is completed. And the the more the state is using the police as their preferred tool of, you know, getting things done and enforcing its will, you know, the more people uh, find police engaging in brutal behavior. So I guess what I'm getting at is, there are good police officers out there, and I think people who become police officers for all the right reasons... But the great danger is not from those people, but from the system in which they are enrolling and how that system uses them. You'll find a lot of the the police officers with a conscience are looking for the exit if they're not headed for it right now. They see what's going on. Now, as, as Dan Sanchez writes, with state impunity, just as with the Ring of Gyges, As Plato's Glaucon put it, no man can be imagined to be of such an iron nature that he would stand fast in justice. And this sheds light on the futility of looking to libertarian politicians to win freedom or help us win freedom from the state. That would be like Geiges not only abstaining from injustice, but outright destroying the ring that would crown him king, as Frodo was tasked to do with the one ring. 
Now, Dan points out Ron Paul was the only politician who could have been expected to be an exception to Glaucon's rule. He's the ultimate outlier in that he is probably the only man of our times who has both political acumen and the principled beliefs and iron nature necessary to resist the corruption of a great power, were he to attain it. He was our one and only Frodo, and he has retired from his political journey. Nobody else in politics evinces even an increment of what it would take to bear the ring of impunity without being enthralled by it and to ultimately destroy it. Sanchez says virtually any other power bearer tasked with, ostensibly tasked with destroying power, would instead develop a permanent dependency on impunity-enhanced aggrandizement, like Gollum's crackhead addiction to the invisibility granting one ring. When human beings find themselves with the ability to safely exploit not only their own persons and property, but that of millions of others to pursue their goals, they will always be loath to clothe that, close that vast vista of opportunities. They'll make excuses for not relinquishing power, just like Bilbo did when pressed by Gandalf to surrender the ring. And like Boromir, they will rationalize exercises of power under the pretense of doing good, including especially the pretense of using power to allegedly combat power and enlarge freedom. Even Gandalf feared this outcome for himself, and he rejected the ring when he said, Don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo, I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. And if ever presented with, uh, end quote, by the way, and if ever presented with the unlikely opportunity to dismantle from within the state apparatus upon which their career, income, and prestige depends, Dan Sanchez says libertarian politicos will reliably choke as Isildur did when, at the last moment, he refused to cast the One Ring into the fires of Mount Doom. Even Frodo made the same refusal, fell into the Ring's thrall, and technically failed his mission. It was only by accident that the Ring fell into the lava as Frodo and Gollum struggled over it. So the conclusion is, state power is impunity, impunity corrupts, and absolute impunity corrupts absolutely. It not only attracts the already corrupt, but it debases every soul that it touches. State impunity is a hell of a drug, says Dan Sanchez, and the only one deserving of absolute prohibition. And he says libertarians especially should stay off the stuff. Isn't that something? I, you know, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, maybe you're right now kind of, ooh, hey, <laughs> that, was a, that was a great thing. But think, think about that blind spot so many people have. To when the state does something, something for which you and I would be rightly prosecuted and punished, we tend to justify, well, they're just doing their jobs, or they're just keeping us safe, and people need to be controlled, and they need to be told and forced to do the right thing. We've seen an awful lot of that just in the course of the pandemic. Well, I hope you enjoyed Dan Sanchez's article. He's, he has many other marvelous things that he's written on. But uh, out there among my favorite writers, Dan Sanchez is right up there at the top of the heap. I want to shift gears here for a moment and talk just a little bit about how government solutions have a tendency to create even more problems than they solve. It, it, I feel like this should be self-evident, but then again, you know, that's assuming everybody's going to see it the way I see it. And clearly they don't. Funny thing is, I don't remember exactly when my eyes were opened 
to that reality that government solutions seem to bring their own problems. But, you know, I, I sure see it that way today. In fact, I saw an excellent article from Thomas L. Knapp that says political power is the problem, not the solution. And listen to the examples he gives here. He says, on the one hand, you've got President Biden wanting to use the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for all workers at companies over 100 employees. Local governments from sea to shining sea, including New York and San Francisco, have conscripted business owners as vaccination passport inspectors, forbidding them to serve customers whose papers aren't in order. Now, on the flip side of that coin, you have Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who are attempting to mandate that businesses may not condition employment or patronage on being vaccinated. And Thomas Knapp says, you know, these two types of mandates may strike you as very different, but in reality, there is no difference at all. He says the politicians involved are authoritarians. Their COVID-19 power games are about power, not about COVID-19. And he says authoritarian bureaucrats and politicians have spent the last year and a half using the pandemic as an excuse to seize more control over our lives than they've ever enjoyed before. And again, it comes from all sides of the political aisle. It's not just, you know, the left wing or the right wing. And now these politicians have that power. He says they're loath to give up that power, casting about for any excuse to hold on to it and to expand it even further. So the corollary of never let a crisis go to waste is never let a crisis end if there's any way to keep it going. Meanwhile, he says an economy they created with their public health measures, none of which have worked as advertised, teeters on the edge. I mean, you've seen the empty shelves at your local stores. Maybe you've seen the yellow out of gas bags over the pump at your local gas station. You've seen the limited hours and drive through only signs at your local fast food restaurants. Well, he says, guess what? Authoritarian politicians and bureaucrats can't fix those problems. They caused those problems. And anything they do other than sitting down, shutting up, and staying out of the way will make those problems worse, not better. And worse, not better, he says, is almost certainly where we're going. Thomas L. Knapp says things are shaping up for a crash that may well make the Great Depression look like a pleasure cruise. And when that crash comes, most Americans will probably willingly cede even more power and more authority to those whose power and authority brought the crash about, you know, in order to fix it. Because as we all know, The way to get your car repaired is to shove a wad of money at the kid who stole it, took it out for a joyride, and then wrapped it around a telephone pole. Thomas Knapp says life won't get better until we get one fact through our heads. Political government is our enemy, not our friend. Thomas Knapp is a director and senior news analyst at the William Lloyd Garrison Center for Libertarian Advocacy Journalism. Pretty interesting stuff, and, and I understand it, it. It will make people uncomfortable. On the one hand, I feel like I, I kind of want to cheers when I cheer when I hear about to Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott saying, "Well, we're going to make it so even businesses can't mandate, you know, that uh, their employees are vaccinated." And it's probably because my <clears throat> my opposition to those vaccination mandates is so strong. But I guess the cautionary tale here, and I'm thankful to Thomas Knapp for for pointing this out, is just because the authoritarianism is flowing in your favor or is supporting something that you support, 
doesn't make it right. And he's right. He's correct here. Truth be told, it would open the door to more mischief on the part of other politicians who would likewise exploit that in in various ways. Hard as it may seem, sometimes the very best thing that we can do is to insist that the state sit down, shut up, and stay out of the way and let people, the market, the public, the populace, solve the problems that really need to be solved. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products, and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep, 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. I have one tonight and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compared to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
Well, hello there and welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Just want to ask a really quick favor. Please pay close attention to the sponsors of this program and the other programs on this network. Make sure they know that their message is reaching your ears and either do business with them or refer somebody to them if it's not something you need at the moment or drop them a note and just let them know. I heard your message because I was listening to America Out Loud. Wanted to share a few thoughts in this segment on uh, what it takes for evil to triumph. Because I, I think most people, I don't think, you, let me just hazard a guess. You would not be listening to a program such as this one if at some level you didn't feel or know in your heart that there's a battle afoot. There's, there is some kind of a conflict. People are recognizing this. They understand that it's not something they can just ignore. There's no place you can safely sit it out. Everybody is going to have to choose a side. And that can be very scary. I came across, uh, actually, there was, a, there was a commentary that somebody had posted about uh, Sophie Scholl. And I, I just thought it was so cool. If, if you're not familiar with, with Sophie Scholl, you'll, you'll have to find a copy of Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. Her, her, her last name is spelled S-C-H-O-L-L. Very similar to school, but, but it's spelled Scholl. And she was one of the members of the White Rose Society uh, back in 1943. She was captured, tried by the Nazis, and killed. Sophie Scholl was a Christian, anti-Nazi political activist. She was active within the nonviolent White Rose Resistance Group. Convicted of high treason, beheaded. What was their crime? Well, it was distributing anti-Nazi literature. They were trying to bring an end to the oppression of the Jews and others while the majority of the German church remained silent. And I just wanted to give you a couple quick quotes of what she said that motivated her to stand up and then put her life on the line, which, by the way, she willingly did. And and we have very clear transcripts because uh, for all their faults, the Nazis were excellent record keepers. And we know word for word what took place in the conversations between her and her Gestapo interrogators. Before she was executed, her final words were, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day, and I have to go. But what does my death matter if, through us, thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Now, I've read that quote many times before, and I think she's right. Someone had to make a start. And she was willing to do it. And she understood at that time, if you were caught by the Nazis, you were at the very least going to be put in prison and tortured and most likely executed. And indeed, she and and her brother and others were executed for their activities. But listen to this other quote from her. And I I, I can't confirm that this is a... a, I've not seen this quote attributed to her before. It sounds like something she would say, so I'm going to say, take this with a grain of salt. But Sophie Scholl said, the real damage is done by those millions who want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. They don't, those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. 
those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principles are only literature. Those who live small die small. It's the reductionist approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion. Because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe? From what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues. And a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. Now, if she said that, that's, that's in keeping with her character. It really is. But it's also kind of, an, kind of an interesting call to the rest of us who may be struggling with that decision. Of, well, what do I do? I mean, it's dangerous. I could lose my job. You know, I know in the, in the previous segment, talked about, uh, you know, police abusing power and others who would abuse power. But I think it's absolutely heroic. The police officers, for instance, who are quitting their jobs, stepping away from the security that they have been building, you know, in a career that's been decades long because they will not be bullied into taking the vaccine. To me, that's that's a very heroic thing to do. They're willing to suffer for what they know is right. And I can't fault a person who's willing to do so. In fact, truth be told, the people that I tend to take most seriously, or at least I'm more willing to look at what they have to say and consider it, are those who have suffered for their beliefs. And I think it works the same for you and me. The more we try to find a safe place to quietly ride out the storm, the less good we will actually do. And the truth is that, that there is no hiding place. Evil will eventually come to us and, and, you know, at sword point, so to speak, force us to make a decision. That's a decision I would like to have made well ahead of time and in such a way that uh, evil has to fight its way up a long, steep, dangerous hill before it ever gets close to me. In fact, I wanted to share with you a commentary from 2015. This is from Paul Rosenberg. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is... And he says, I'm betting that most of my readers could complete that phrase. The problem is, it isn't quite true. Edmund Burke, its supposed source, was a good man, but that doesn't make the saying true. So here's the complete passage in the form most of us know. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And Paul Rosenberg says, yes, there's a time when good men and women must stand up for what's right, even when it involves risk. But that moment comes only after evil has already been well-established and is powerfully on the move. He says, fighting evil may be an essential thing, but it isn't the first problem. It matters only after thousands or millions of mistakes have already been made. And if those first mistakes had not been made, great fights against evil wouldn't even be necessary. So he says, let's begin with a crucial point. And that point is, evil is inherently weak. And here's why that's true. Evil does not produce. It must take advantage of healthy and effective life. In other words, good men and women. If it's to succeed. Evil by its nature is wasteful and destructive. It breaks and kills and disrupts, but it does not produce and invent. Evil requires the production of the good in order to do its deeds. Consider these questions that he asks here. 
Paul Rosenberg says, how much territory could Caesar have conquered on his own? How many people could Joseph Stalin have killed with no one to take his orders? How many people could Mao have starved to death without obedient middlemen? With duteous followers, however, evil rulers killed some 260 million people just in the 20th century. And Paul Rosenberg says the truth is that evil survives by tricking the good into doing its will. And without thousands of basically decent people confused enough to obey, evil would fall quickly. And then he goes on to say the great tragedy of our era is the extent to which evil has been successful in convincing people to service it. Good people have yielded, having yielded their wills, arm evil, accommodate evil, and acquiesce to its actions. And he follows that up with a great quote from Hannah Arendt, who said, The sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never made up their minds to be good or evil. That's what happens when you sit on the fence. People end up supporting evil, says Paul Rosenberg, because they don't want to make their minds up at all. They want to avoid criticism. They want to avoid vulnerability. So they hold to the middle of the pack and avoid all risk. Now, these people wouldn't initiate murders by themselves, but in the name of duty or loyalty or unity and or the greater good, they cooperate with evil and they give it their strength and each plays a small part None of them stretches so far that they'd have to contemplate the final effects of their actions. They're like the snowflake in an avalanche. I'm not really responsible. I'm just a tiny snowflake. But when you go along with all the other snowflakes, look out. Paul Rosenberg says in the 20th century, the actions of such people led directly to the murders of 260 million people. And here's the kicker. They did this precisely by avoiding decisions by merely obeying. And from here he talks about sins of obedience. People think of murder, lying, and robbery as sins, but he says none of those has nearly the death toll of obedience. Basically, decent men and women obey agents of evil for very mundane reasons. And the process often goes like this. Being confused and intimidated, they look for the center of the pack. They try not to make waves, They learn that they can avoid making waves best if they adopt the perspectives of their overlords. So they run the overlord slogans through their minds as a default program. In the end, these people don't make up their minds. Rather, they take on the minds of their overlords and do their will. And so he says the vast majority of evil done on earth traces back to minds and wills that have been abandoned to fear and laid on the altar of obedience. So he says, this is what the famous quote should say. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to obey. We should be painting that saying on our walls. Kind of an interesting twist on that saying. And and please, I, I, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't confuse this. Some people would take us, oh, so you, you're just for everybody for himself. The law of the jungle. Lawlessness. Anarchy. Every man for himself. I don't see that at all. I don't think that's what Paul Rosenberg is saying. I think we have to have our conscience engaged. And if you're not familiar with your conscience, here's the good news. That's something you have absolute control over. You can choose to be more connected to your conscience and to exercise that conscience 
or not. Think about the quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn about let the lie come into the world. Let it triumph even, but not through me. Sometimes the disobedient are the people who are doing exactly the right thing. Not to put too fine a point on it, not to invoke Godwin's law here, but the people who reported Anne Frank and took her and her family away to the camps to die were law-abiding citizens. They were following the laws. They were obedient. The people who were hiding her and her family from the authorities were considered criminals. They were breaking the laws. Which one was standing on the moral high ground? I can't answer that question for you, but I I know how I would answer it. It's very clear that some people recognized the choice before them, and hard as it was, they chose wisely. And once again, I'm just going to throw in a quick plug. If you haven't seen Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, the film is entirely in German, but it has subtitles, and it is so brilliantly done, it's not tarted up like so many Hollywood productions. I don't think it was produced by Hollywood in the first place, but it's just, there's not a social justice message there so much as there's a message of the courage to choose right over wrong and to remain close to your beliefs. Sophie was given an out. She was given the opportunity to let her brother take the fall and to walk away like, you know, she'd had nothing to do with it. And given that opportunity, she confessed to the inspector who was uh, was interrogating her. He was like, well, you know, your brother has confessed and said you knew nothing about this. If, if this is true, then you are free to go. And in the movie, Sophie thinks for a moment, and then she says, and again, these are her actual words from the transcript, I did it, and I'm glad I did it, and I would do it again. I mean, she sealed her fate. I don't think she realized how quickly they would try her and kill her. But she was willing to face the punishment. That's pretty deep stuff to contemplate. Because right now, you know, you and I aren't really in danger of being hauled in by the Gestapo. I mean, we're not we're not facing, you know, a death sentence because we disagree with the way things are being done right now. But everything, everything seems to be indicating that we are headed in much the same totalitarian direction that Sophie Scholl's society was headed. And it's interesting the the event that. Uh, more or less tipped her over the edge that engaged her conscience to the point where she was willing to sacrifice it all was when a nurse friend of hers and Sophie herself was training to become a nurse but when a friend of hers who was a nurse was watching mentally handicapped children be loaded on a bus and taken away to be executed to be killed by the Nazis the children were asked where are we going where are we going Oh, we're taking you to heaven. And they were singing as the bus pulled away. And that so horrified her that her government could see those lives as non-essential, to put it mildly. That they would be willing to liquidate other human beings for the sake of the purity of their race. She brings this up to the inspector that was interviewing her too and says, 
You know, that's an affront to God. He slammed the desk. There is no God. And to his worldview, there wasn't other than the state. So keep in mind, I'm not I'm not suggesting, uh, you know, if you're if you're not dead by the end of, uh, you know, the time you've stood up for freedom, if you haven't caused the state to kill you, then somehow you failed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just pointing out that uh, the, the kind of courage and the kind of attachment to principle that's necessary to move the cause of liberty is, is what was exemplified by Sophie Scholl. She was an absolute hero. And, and the funny thing is, she and the others of the White Rose Society who were tried and executed, I mean, they were condemned as traitors. They were condemned as this is the worst thing. Look at their ungratefulness to the, to the state and everything that it's done for them. How dare they? In fact, their trial was nothing more than a show trial with the judge up there performing like some stage performer, denouncing them, screaming and ranting and raving. But you shift ahead a few years after that awful war had reached its conclusion. And lo and behold, Sophie Scholl and others of the White Rose are now rightly recognized and celebrated as heroes. There are parks, there are streets that are named after them. In fact, they are held up as examples of this is an example of the finest Germans of their time. Because they spoke up at a time when everyone else was too afraid to. Now again, I'm not suggesting that's the situation we find ourselves in today. It's exactly We're not there. We're not to the point where, you know, people are being taken out and shot or beheaded just because, you know, they're not going along with the program. But think about all the efforts to cancel people, to to prevent dissenting points of view from being heard. How can that be interpreted as anything other than a slow drift in the direction of the kind of totalitarianism that claimed the life of Sophie Scholl? I don't think we can do it. I wanted to share one other quick commentary with you, and, and this, this kind of gets us down to the nuts and bolts of um, the crossroads that we find ourselves at as a nation today. What kind of nation were we before we got here? What kind of nation do we want to be as we move ahead? Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation has a really great take on the conflicting visions that shaped America and the choice before us. He says, there have been two conflicting versions in American visions, rather, in American history that have shaped our nation. And as conditions in the United States continue to worsen, he says it's important that Americans engage in serious soul searching to determine which vision should be embraced going forward. I love this first one because he he reminds us of what we once had. He says, the first vision that uh, was that which characterized the American people from the founding of the United States to the early part of the 20th century. And there are various labels that we can put on this particular vision, a free market system, a capitalist system, a a free enterprise system, rather, and limited government republic. But his point is, regardless of which label is used, there is no disputing that this was the most unusual political system in history. Just think, he says, there was once a society, there existed a society in America in which there was no income tax and no IRS. Americans were free to keep everything they earned and do whatever they wanted with their own money, save, spend, hoard, donate, or invest it. 
He says there was no government-mandated charity, including Social Security, farm subsidies, welfare, education grants, uh, uh, any other type of government-provided philanthropy. Charity was considered an entirely voluntary action. There were also no education grants, no foreign aid, corporate bailouts, SBA loans, government grants, or other types of welfare. No Medicare or Medicaid, no Centers for Disease Control, no FDA, no medical licensure laws. Hospitals were privately owned. Essentially, there was no government involvement in health care. No immigration controls. People from around the world were free to come to the United States with no questions asked. There were no limits on numbers. There were no required credentials or educational background. There were no literacy tests. Even knowing English was not a prerequisite for entry. And as long as one didn't have tuberculosis or some other infectious disease and wasn't an imbecile, entry was automatic. There were few few economic regulations, no minimum wage laws, no price controls, no gun control laws. Americans understood that the right to keep and bear arms was a key to a free society. And they never would have permitted government officials to enact gun control laws. There was no public schooling systems, no compulsory school attendance laws. Education was private and based on free market principles. No Pentagon or military industrial complex. Americans opposed standing armies. That's why there was just a basic, relatively small army throughout the 1800s. No empire of domestic and foreign military bases. No CIA. No state-sponsored assassinations. No coups or foreign regime change operations. No torture. No NSA, no secret mass surveillance schemes, no FBI. Crime was considered a state and local matter. Americans didn't want what President Truman referred to as a Gestapo-like entity. No wars in European, Asian, or African countries. He's meaning no entanglement in wars there. No foreign aid, foreign interventions, and wars of aggression. Here's a big one. There was no Federal Reserve System. No fiat, meaning paper money. Gold coins and silver coins were the official money of the American people. No U.S. departments of education, commerce, labor, health and human services, housing and urban development, uh, transportation, energy, and homeland security. No U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. No Environmental Protection Agency. No Federal Trade Commission. No Occupational Safety and Health Administration. No Federal Communications Commission, no Federal Deposit uh, Insurance Corporation, no Interstate Commerce Commission, no National Labor Relations Board, and many other regulatory commissions. Isn't it mind-blowing how many of those agencies have sprung up? Jacob Hornberger says America had once the finest health care system in history, one based on free market principles. He says health care prices were so low and so stable that hardly anyone had or needed major medical insurance. Going to the doctor was like going to the grocery store. Moreover, doctors and hospitals treated the poor on a purely voluntary basis. Now, he says, I'm not suggesting this was a 100% libertarian uh, society, because there was slavery and women didn't have the right to vote, and there were tariffs, and there was the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1980 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. But he is suggesting that the 19th century Americans proved it's possible to achieve all of those libertarian principles listed above. 
and the result of this unique way of life was one of the most phenomenal occurrences in history. By the late 1800s and early 1900s, the standard of living of the American people was skyrocketing. No one had ever witnessed anything like this in history. People were going from rags to riches in one, two, or three generations. Thousands of penniless immigrants were flooding to America to partake in the American dream, many of whom couldn't even speak English. At the beginning stages of U.S. history, the standard of living was relatively low for most everyone. Many people struggled just to survive. But he says in each generation, families would save a portion of their income. Those savings would go into banks. The banks would lend it out to employers who used it to make their businesses more productive. And as productivity increased, so did the firm's revenues and profits, which enabled these businesses to pay higher wages to their workers. Now, the employers were raising wages not because they were motivated by charity, but rather by competition. Because employees would go to those businesses that were paying the best wages. Sound money played a role in that process as well because people were no longer concerned about the possibility that government could wipe out the value of their savings through the debasement of paper money. And that's because the Constitution required the federal government and the state governments to use only gold and silver coins as the official money of the nation. Government couldn't print gold like it could paper money. People were willing to invest in 100-year corporate bonds because they were repayable in gold. And in a nation in which people were free to accumulate wealth, there was the greatest outburst of charitable activity that mankind had ever seen. He points out this was how the churches, the hospitals, the museums, colleges, and universities got built. With the money that multimillionaires were making in a society where people were free to accumulate unlimited amounts of wealth. And as the rising standard of living began providing people with the leisure of luxury time, or the luxury of leisure time, rather, many people used that as an opportunity to participate in philanthropic activity. He says, after Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States in the 1830s, in his book, Democracy in America, he marveled at the enormous amount of voluntary associations and philanthropic activity in America. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, sometimes I've thought, if I could choose where and when I wanted to live, my choice would be the United States from around 1880 to about 1910. It must have been a phenomenally phenomenally exciting time in which to live. Now, he says, yes, I know there was no air conditioning, no computers, no GPS, and cell phones. But new inventions were coming into existence every day. And the standard of people, the standard of living of people was soaring. Most important, it was a period of time in which economic liberty reached its apogee. Now he goes into the in the article he goes from there into the growth of statism. And he hits some pretty big high points here of how did we turn the corner? The Sherman Antitrust Act was a big part of this, the Chinese Exclusion Act the United States getting involved in the Spanish-American War and turning toward empire and intervention, the Federal Reserve System, the income tax, draft and conscription laws in World War I, as well as participation in that war, the Federal Reserve causing the 1929 stock market crash, and, of course, the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt's creation of a welfare state, social security, public schooling, 
And then, of course, uh, there were other things like uh, after World War II, the bringing about of a national security state. And on and on down the list. And the crazy thing is, most Americans have no idea of the two completely opposite visions that have governed our nation. Think about that. There are people who honestly believe, well, it's been the same system all this time. They're convinced that Roosevelt saved free enterprise through a welfare state and a regulated, managed economy. They're convinced today that they still live in a free country. In other words, notwithstanding the fact that they lived under a, that they live under a totally different type of political economic system than their ancestors lived, today's Americans are convinced that they are as free as their 19th century counterparts, perfectly embodying the words of the great German thinker Johann Goethe. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. And he says the second worst part of all this is that when Americans today look upon the massive dysfunctional nature of our society, for example, the soaring suicide rates among young people, the drug addiction, the alcoholism, the police abuse, and the irrational acts of mass violence, they blame it on freedom and free enterprise, which causes them to want to move America towards socialism and interventionism. Two conflicting visions, says Jacob Hornberger. And he asks, which one should America embrace going forward? He says, it sure seems like a no-brainer to me. I guess it would be that way for, for most of us. At least I hope it would be that way for most of us. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. <laughs> 